chapter five after imagine yourself in a building up in flames being told to stand still the windows wide open the sleep is on faith you don't know who will catch you maybe somebody will the ocean is wild and over your head and the boat beneath you is sinking don't need room for your bags hope is all that you have so say the lord's pray prayer twice hold your babies tight Surely someone will reach out a hand and show you a safe place to land. Safe Place to Land by Sarah Bareilles A little while after making it out of the disassociative trance state, a doctor came in and informed me that what I had just been through was a psychotic break. In response to this new information, my whole mindset shifted, and this knowledge really helped to bring me closer to reality. I knew this doctor was right, even though during the episode, I had been convinced I was having spiritual experiences gone wrong. As his words sunk in even deeper, something inside of me shifted, and I was suddenly the rational thinking me again. After a week in the psych ward, by the time of discharge, almost everything was gone, except for some very mild voices, which were so minuscule, minuscule I thought they might be my imagination. I found myself trying to piece together the previous weeks, but doing so only caused a deep pain in my gut and more questions. Questions like, what the hell? How could this have happened to me? How could I have put my kids through what they went through? Why didn't I have any control over the things that were happening in my own brain? How could I have fought so hard for myself only to end up here? How could I have been so dumb to believe that I lived in a world where I would get to have hope or relief? A big root of what I was really struggling with was hope, and to have issues with hope was not a new thing for me, but it all went so much deeper now. As I recovered at home, my family made sure I always had another family member with me, just to be safe. My next thoughts revolved around how I could help my kids cope and heal from what had happened. These thoughts quickly evolved into whether I needed to completely give up my time with them. This was very hard for me to even consider, because being a mom had always been everything to me. I thought if psychosis was going to be a chronic thing for me, then hands down the best thing to do was to give up the custody I had. As it was though, I wondered if this could have been a one-time fluke because even the doctor at the hospital hadn't been comfortable giving me a full-on diagnosis. He had said that the way my episode presented and my history didn't fit well with any of the mental disorders that psychosis is a part of. There had also been some big physical symptoms that had manifested throughout the episode, and deep down I suspected the root cause was related to my ever-evolving physical health stuff. <clears throat> The only way I felt okay with my kids coming back was if I could have some constant intensive family support there to ensure their safety while I worked on my stability for the next while. I felt strongly that I still had things of value to offer my kids, so I promised myself that if there was ever an inkling I was headed towards another episode, or for if whatever reason I didn't have the intensive family support, this was when I would consider different custody measures. 
My kids were around eight, six, and a year, and I'm sure coming home was very traumatizing for them. I still have a lot of guilt about how scary it must have been for them and over whether this was the right decision. Our divorce was still so new and things were still tense. I was worried back then any time away from my kids would make me more likely to lose the custody I had. There was no way I would have had them come home if I didn't have the family support, but because I did, this became within the realm of possibilities because we could have that backup safety. I couldn't comprehend losing my kids completely over something that had never happened to me before unless I knew it was a chronic issue. I wanted to talk to them about that night, but I also didn't want to hyper-focus on it or talk about above what their ages could handle. To talk to them in a timely manner felt important because I thought acknowledging the experience in an age-appropriate way might offer the best chances for healing. Even though I didn't believe in God, I found myself praying <clears throat> about how to best handle things, and I was soon inspired to compare the way I acted that night to the fever dream episodes that me and another one of my kids occasionally had. After all, the whole experience really had felt much like a fever dream on steroids. <clears throat> a fever dream is, where, is when body temperature affects the way your brain works, and it can produce waking hallucinations, vivid imagery, as well as nightmares. This felt like a good comparison because the kids and I had personal experience with fever dreams and all the weird stuff that can happen when someone is having one. I explained to them that a fever dream wasn't exactly what had happened, but that the episode I had 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 been out of my control and felt similar to a fever dream. Then I told them that my family was going to be with us for the next while to help us stay safe and that I was getting the help and medicine to try to prevent anything like this from happening again. I don't remember their response in words. I'm sure they were still shell-shocked. But I do remember, after we finished the convo, they seemed more relaxed and they went back to playing. I felt the tiniest bit of comfort knowing that I had listened to the prompting I had been having regarding how to talk to them about that night but I still had mountains of guilt, anger, and sadness deep inside over the experience. To have worked so hard on myself and then have everything obliterated in such a personal and horrific way was devastating. The next while became about working on myself and living moment to moment because the pain I felt over this was too much to process. My motto and the way I lived for the next while became just do the next right thing and then repeat. One step at a time, one next right thing at a time, I pushed forward. I also began to put a lot of effort with the follow-up care I was receiving through my new psychiatrist and psychologist. I probably wasn't ready, but I returned to school to finish out the semester, and there were quite a few reasons why I did so. Number one, at the time, my financial aid was a big part of how I was supporting us, so I didn't want to risk losing the monetary support. Number two, my whole life, I had never done well in school, so my personal vendetta had become 
to finally do this school thing right. I had already worked so hard this first semester back. I would be damned if I was going to fail out with just a few weeks remaining. Number three, I valued the deeper friendships I had formed in class, and I wanted to let go of them on my terms. Number four, being school reminded me of the new independent life I had briefly tasted, so this was hard to let go of. Number five, I had developed such a love for school, and this was the first thing beyond being a mom that I had loved in a long time. Number six, I wanted to be able to have the last few compassion workshops because what we had learned there and practiced there had become so meaningful to me. Number seven, I felt so much less mental anguish and pain when at school, and UVU campus just really felt like where I was supposed to be. I tried to resume my old routines and to go about life as I had known it before the episode, but I found myself a far cry from the person I had become. There were dramatic differences in many areas, but I moved forward anyways, unsteady and unsure of myself and the world around me. I was transparent with everyone from class about what I had just been through, and as I shared about it, I noticed a stark contrast in my confidence level. Everyone from class was very supportive and compassionate towards me, and most of them expressed having thought there was something that had been way off with me in the previous weeks. My next compassion workshop paper I wrote was about coming out of the episodes, and I let the words come up however felt right, which was in first person and captured me waking up to this new reality. When I read the paper on one of the last few compassion workshops of the semester, my body and voice shook. After I finished reading, some guy who was visiting from a previous semester, in parentheses, old learning community students often visited, asked me when this had happened. I told him a few weeks before, and he just expressed some shock that I was sitting there in class so soon afterwards. I was pretty shocked I was there too, but I was just so hell-bent on finishing the semester no matter what. Many years later, I would find this paper, and it would help me to finally begin writing about this episode. Add a few more years to that, and part of what I had written all those years back would end up fitting perfectly after the chapter that night, which had already been mostly written. As I sat in class among these friends I had felt so connected to, and I tried to participate in this thing that had been so meaningful to me, there was a complete disconnect in a devastating way. This hadn't been only a class for me. Learning to write and share the way we did had been a spiritual connection for me. And as a byproduct of doing what we did there, this tight-knit community that I love so much had been created. Now being back from the episode, I felt like I was watching the group from the outside while I longed to be on the inside again. I was just so grief-stricken and traumatized. In this very new, different reality, the remaining little bit of safe place instinct I thought I might have left was telling me that the kind of independence I had briefly experienced was no longer a safe or good choice. Instead, I felt the strong need to surround myself with as many safe people, places, and things as I could, or in, other, or in Sarah B.'s words, 
to find some safe places to land. In my mind, at this point in time, I saw giving up the independence I had gained as something that meant I was no longer capable of living from the safe place I had found. This wasn't true, though. I think my safe place instinct was even more with me at this point. It was just guiding me in a different way. I had already learned how to set healthier boundaries. This time was about me becoming broken enough that I could learn how to find and rely on safe people. I was exactly where I needed to be, even though I didn't realize this yet, and I thought I had lost all of my progress and most of my safe place. Around a month after the voices had left, all of a sudden, the nice nurse lady who had been in the episode and the minions manifested again. Only it wasn't really like the episode. It sort of felt like my brain was forcing them in a way. This sent me into a panic, but they were so much different from the episode and so minuscule. I thought maybe there was a possibility that they were coming from trauma and an overactive part of my imagination. To think that psychosis might be a more chronic thing in my life felt like the end of my world because being a safe place for my babies was all I truly cared about. I thought that because of how mild they were and how different they felt that I would keep a close eye on them. For the next day and then decide my next steps. I also updated my family so they could help keep a close eye on me too. This had come on a week where my kids were with my ex, so that was a relief. When I had been in the episode, it had taken so many different loud, strong, undeniable voices intensely bombarding me for many days to get me far away from reality. Knowing this, I made a deal with myself that if these possibly imagination-related voices lasted longer than two days, or if they got worse, and I could tell they weren't just my imagination, then I would start the process of making different custody arrangements. Over the next few days, I made sure to stay near my family, and to my huge relief, two days after they had come, they were gone. This had felt so different from the episode, almost like the trauma of the episode had caused my brain to create this worst-case scenario. In the episode, the voices had just moved in and taken over, in a way that was nothing like what had just come. Nevertheless, I decided to label these my pre-voices just to make sure I would be cautious about the state of mind I was in if they ever came back. As I continued to adjust, readjust to my new reality and with the semester over, I began to put even more work in with the professionals who were now treating me. My new therapist had been a comfort, comfort, had been comforting from the very first day we met, and our connection felt different than any I had ever had with a therapist. Our first session, he had given me some amazing speech about how I was the CEO of my own life, not him, that I would be in charge of my own path, and the answers I would find there would come from inside of myself, not from him. I found his attitude and approach refreshing because he was honest, direct, set clear boundaries, and didn't encourage a dependence on him. The independence I had briefly known 
didn't feel safe at this time, but his perspective reminded me of my brave, brave and new beginnings times before the episode that I hoped I would someday be able to find my way back to. I didn't think I could ever be independent again after being so crushed by the episode, but his words gave me a tiny grain of pre-hope for my future. The other professional I was meeting with was a very compassionate and understanding psychiatrist. His style of practice was very similar to my new psychologist, very direct, open, real, and compassionate. He was located at the same building as my psychologist, and they were able to coordinate my care. In an ideal world, he said hopefully the voices would stay gone, but if they did return, at the very least, I would need to find some ways to learn to cope with them. He shared stories and books about others who heard voices every single day, but still found ways to live stable and very inspiring lives. The fact that there were people out there like this that really existed gave me another tiny seed of pre-hope because I had thought that if the voices came back, any chance for a life would be completely over. These men were the best connection I had ever had with professional help, and I felt very safe with both of them right off the bat. They genuinely seemed to have a passion for and care about the field that they were in. The next thing I felt inspired to do was to move near my parents as soon as possible, which was around 30 minutes from where we currently lived. This would ensure access to continued intensive family support, and I wanted my kids to have a safe place right near us if things ever got dicey again. These conditions were the only way that I felt comfortable keeping the custody that I had. I talked with my kids openly and let them know that if they ever thought I was acting the way I had been that night, they could say something like, see you, mom, you're being psychotic, and go, go over to my parents' house for help. I know this is not an ideal thing for a kid their age to have to decide, but I felt it important to talk about things openly and to have a plan in place for them. I made a goal to try to continue to talk to them openly and to remind them every once in a while of this backup plan. When I went to check out the place that would soon be my house, even just looking at it from the outside, a feeling of peace flooded over me. The real estate agent had told me it was open and I had gone alone to see it. This place was a three bedroom, 2.5 bath in a cute little townhouse community with a few playgrounds, a clubhouse, a basketball court, and best of all, it was around the corner from my family. The whole setup felt like it had been tailor-made for me and my situation. As I walked through the front door, the feeling of peace just multiplied. The inside was newer, nice, and bright, and just had a good vibe in general. As I slowly walked through each room on the main floor, I just loved everything I saw. I headed up the stairs and looked through all the rooms, but it wasn't long before I found myself in the master bedroom, sprawled out comfortably on the carpet. As my body melted into the floor, I breathed a deep breath and I thought, this is my house. My ex-husband helped me to get in, into this place, for which I'll always be grateful. If I wouldn't have been able to have my family very close like this, I wouldn't have felt comfortable with the custody the way we had it. 
By this time, we had worked out a 50-50 custody with an every-other-week arrangement, so the kids were to spend one week with me and my fam for a while, and one week with him, and so on. As the kids and I started to go about life in our new place, I felt the tiniest bit of pre-comfort, like I was where I was supposed to be. My family's the professionals. Tr- my family, the professionals treating me, Melody, and the general support I received from the program, and many friends in the program, were a good start of support systems that I already had in place. This new place we now had to live felt like a very literal and metaphorical safe place to land. My thoughts stayed focused on doing everything I could to seek stability and to continue to add safe people, places, and things to our lives. Around this time is when I think the type of love I felt for my kids began to morph. Instead of needing or not being able to go on without them, I was starting to feel the kind of love where my main motivation was to provide for them. The pre-voices that had come were not yet assigned to me that psychosis was back because they had felt like they were coming from a traumatized part of my imagination and been so short-lived. Until I was sure that psychosis was a chronic thing for me, I was going to do everything I could to be a safe place for them and for myself. I was also starting to feel a more unconditional love and understanding towards myself and all that I had been through. As I look back on this time now while I write, and with this experience and many years behind me, I think to myself, perhaps this reality was not as sad as I thought. Perhaps this reality is exactly where I needed to be because I don't think anything less would have changed me in the ways I needed to change. I don't think anything less could have forced me to work this hard and to develop the skills I needed to at the fast rate I did. I don't think anything else would have made me willing to learn to rely on safe outside sources in a deeper and healthier way I was headed towards learning. In addition to adding safe people, places, and things to my life, I decided to up my recovery program and to ensure I was doing as many as the 12-step program suggestions as possible. Doing this counted as another safe thing I was adding to my life. About a month after we moved into our new place, my new add safe people, places, and things instinct I had been having got more specific. This happened one day when the kids and I were hanging out at my parents' house in their backyard. I was playing on a treehouse slide with my youngest when a thought popped in my head and heart. All of a sudden, I felt strongly that a friend of mine in the program I had met a few years previous was supposed to be my sponsor. This inspiration didn't feel like just a thought. It felt like some sort of old and ancient truth. To even think of switching sponsors felt weird because Melody had always been my most favorite and the best sponsor slash friend slash safe person slash human. She had brought me so much unconditional love and understanding, along with all the trippy, weird, cool, spiritual stuff I loved learning from her. In thinking about our relationship like this, I realized that we had grown and that Melody now felt more like a close friend slash family member. I don't remember how I talked to her about switching, 
only that I did and that she was all for whatever I thought was right for me. I had first met this friend slash person I thought was supposed to be my sponsor within my first few months in the program. After this, I considered her a good friend and example, even though we didn't see one another too often. Here I was now a few years after our meeting, and this prompting to ask her to be my sponsor felt important. After I asked her, my first thing was to begin calling her every day at 10 a.m. I didn't always want to call, but I called anyways, and fairly quickly, talking to someone consistently that early in the day helped me and became a comfort. My desperation, in some ways, was proving to be a gift because it made me more willing to do the things I probably normally wouldn't have been willing to do otherwise. As I moved forward in the semester, academically, I adopted a rule that another dear friend from the program had shared with me that had worked for her. The rule was simple, show up to class no matter what. And this spoke to me because one of my biggest problems in high school and my first attempt at college had been attendance. There were many things contributing to my attendance issues. One big one was that I had always experienced pretty severe ADD type of symptoms that made school more of a challenge for me. As a result, when I had been in school, I was often completely unprepared, and this had been something I was so hard on myself about. The shame and panic I usually felt over being unprepared would often cause me to miss class, and then I would get more behind with each class missed. This had led me to barely passing grades and sometimes failing grades and was a pattern I had followed. Another big thing that had contributed to my school troubles was that to physically go about a whole school day had always been hard for me. At this point though, I was so disconnected from my body because of years of confusing chronic health problems that I hadn't yet been able to consciously realize how deeply my physical issues affected me. I had desperately wanted to do well in school and wasn't someone who didn't care about it. The desire to do well in school had always been with me and I beat myself up a lot because I didn't understand why I just couldn't do it. In fact, one of the big things I had longed for in life was just to freaking do well in school. So this friend's suggestion had been very welcome. I made another goal for my school days and this was to do whatever it took to get my ass onto campus in time for my first class. To show up on time like my life depended on it, even if I wasn't prepared or didn't have the homework done or didn't feel good. Of course, I still showed up if I was running late because of rule number one, but being on time just became really important to me. After I practiced showing up on time like my life depended on it for a while, I decided that this frame of mind would probably be a good, good to apply to many areas of my life. To just make sure I was showing up to my life like my life depended on it, even if I felt unprepared or unwell. In parentheses, the chronic health problems I had made it so I often didn't feel good. In other words, to suit up and show up to life no matter how I felt, which was a saying I had heard a lot in recovery. 
Although school wasn't super easy for me, I had a new love for it, and being at UVU just continued to feel so right. Every class I made it to, I would just get this relaxing feeling of like, oh my god, I made it here. I'm good now. And no matter the subject we were learning, I enjoyed it because being there got me out of my own head. And more importantly, I was overcoming school obstacles that I had been so frustrated over for most of my life. None of the classes I was enrolled in compared to learning communities, probably because that class had felt like a monumental spiritual experience, but I still felt peace around anything school-related. As a side product, the more I showed up and the more I did the work, my self-esteem began to increase by tiny amounts. Not really noticeable to me back then, but in hindsight, very apparent. One thing my brain often got hung up on and obsessed over was whether all of my hard work was for nothing, because most things in life just continued to be extra hard for me. I thought for how hard I was fighting every single day that life would eventually start to get easier for me, but that just did not prove to be the case. I was putting in so much effort only to get little relief, but part of my lack of bigger returns was that my physical health issues were playing a much bigger role in all that I had to overcome daily than I had been able to realize yet. I definitely had small moments of relief and some pretty steady progress, but this time period was much like my times before wild geese internal shifts, which was to work really hard but not be able to feel relief very easily. Often I watched others around me who I thought functioned better than I did, and there was a part of me that just felt really inadequate and jealous of others.